This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. All right, guys, welcome back to AHP. Thanks for joining me. I'm here with Tom Tolley from Under Resistance Armoury, and uh, he's already been working on guns for me uh, before we've even started the show, which is absolutely fantastic. So first off, thank you for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks. No, thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Excellent. Okay, tell us about gunsmithing. Now, guys, if you're not here, I will put a few photos if uh, Tom lets me. He's absolutely. Got, yeah, he's got a really good setup here. I mean, really nice. Uh, I guess a, more of a rustic feel, I guess. Very clean and does a lot of gunsmithing. So, mate, tell us about gunsmithing first, how long you've been into it, and uh, what got you interested in gunsmithing? It's a bit of a a tricky one. I sort of fell into gunsmithing after um, doing a stint as a ballistics engineer and continued on to get what's called a restricted gunsmithing license or restricted armourer's license, um, which doesn't allow you to make barrels and actions, but everything else, and then pushed through that in the first first year or two of uh, doing just gunsmithing and then decided to push out on my own and buy this new facility and fit it out. How long are you, do you shoot now? Are you a shooter? I'm a shooter, yeah. Yep. Mostly hunting and pistols, but a bit of everything. Before we get into the gunsmithing, I just want to talk about that just a little bit. So how did you get into hunting? How did you get into shooting? Was it a family tradition? Was your dad into it? How did you initially get uh, into this wonderful sport of shooting? I was, I was brought up with a gun in my hand. I, uh, I'm one of the pre-96 generation people. So, you know, we used to shoot a daisy around the backyard as a kid. But um, my grandfather shot... Uh, competitively for many years um he was probably one of the best shotgun shooters in australia for for nearly three decades um and the one of the biggest collectors of purdy shotgun rifles so I grew up uh, duck shooting purdy with purdies with my grandfather and uh, my uncle was an olympic shooter in pistol and uh it's uh, right back to my great-grandfather who invented the 500 450 nitro what about hunting? What do you like to hunt? I mean, what interests you when you get an opportunity to go out hunting? Is there any specific species you like to go for? Or it's it's a I've moved states so many times. So I think in the beginning, um, I grew up hunting ducks. South Australia, where I'm from, is a real duck hunting place, and I grew up around Mount Gambier region and just used to shoot ducks. So then, of course, got my duck dog, and and that was my shooting. And rabbits were abundant. It was pre-myxomatosis and and pre-Khaleesi, so the rabbits were abundant. So we'd just go out and shoot rabbits, and so that's where the passion was. Just shotguns and twenty twos, and then it sort of it branched out from there. When I moved states into New South Wales, it was deer hunting. Um, so pushed up to two seventy calibers, and then fell in love with a lot of the Weatherby calibers. You know, your your three hundred Weatherby Magnum. Your 257 Weatherby Magnum, so deer hunting. And now up here in Queensland, it seems to be a pig town. So I really got into the pig hunting up here in Queensland. How did you, how come you moved so many states? Was it work or how did you end up in Queensland? I've moved for work many times. I, I used to work as an um, electromagnetic engineer, um, an audio engineer. So I was moved around states um, by the company I worked for. So starting in South Australia, then of course Sydney, down to Perth. Um, and back to Melbourne, up to Brisbane, back to Adelaide, back to Perth for work. So really gave me a good chance to really see how every state, it's its own cosmos really and, and how they hunt and how they shoot. And, you know, in, in Victoria, they like to spend a few more dollars on the gun and, and really go for the deer or ducks. Um, whereas up here, it seems to be a lower price gun as a general rule, um, but more of a, it's more of a tool up here. There's one thing we'd probably get on pretty well because, uh, as Aaron knows, he's sitting behind me from Shooting Stuff Australia, just uh, watching us do the podcast. I'd love to – I love my duck hunting. That's something I enjoy too, and I go away on the, to the Riverina each year. I just came back before I came up here a couple of – about probably four weeks ago, but I love that duck shooting. Why, why do you like that as well? And I guess it sucks as you can't really do that in Queensland now. Yeah, you know, it's, I find it really strange. You can't, can't hunt duck up here. You know, I go to Northern Territory to hunt geese, um, and I really enjoy the bird shoot. And I think it just boils back down to providing for yourself and your family from the land. You know, it's not out there to just blast things away. Like, we get painted with a pretty rough brush by the public and, and in the media and things like that as just gun-toting yahoos. But in realistic terms, it's to, to go and shoot a duck, pluck it, gut it, and cook it for your family. It's, it, it gives you um, a really sort of an... an a sense of being connected to the whole chain rather than just going and buying a lover duck from the from the seafood aisle. 
<laughs> so what would you consider yourself? Would you consider yourself, and I'm looking around here, there's some nice nice guns on the wall, guys. I guess you can't see it, but I should be able to share some on the Facebook page. Pistol guy, uh, rifle guy, shotgun guy, what's your number one if you had to sort of pick one? Uh, I think if I had to pick one, I still love a suppressed M4. Um, it's probably my favourite weapon. I've uh, been fortunate enough in my industry to do some some ballistic engineering and testing on them. Um, it's a really slick machine, but when it comes to hunting, I cannot pass up a, a beautiful English shotgun. Um, I won't hunt with a modern gun. It's everything I use is is sort of that early 1900s side by side hammerless things like that. And I, and I also absolutely adore my Weatherby rifles. Yeah, you know, I love hunting with a with a crafted rifle with a beautiful timber stock and a sling. Yeah, you know, they're probably my two favourites. But again, taking a 45 cold out and just unloading a high cap mag is is definitely something I still enjoy as well. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go hunting, I guess now that you're in Queensland, um, you know it's freaking hot up here, guys. Luckily, we've got some air conditioning here in the. Uh, uh, the gunsmithing room, so that's pretty good. But if you get an opportunity to go out here in Queensland, what's there to shoot up here? Most of the time I head up to Townsville Way, um, head out to Weeper as well. So there's lots of pigs out there. I do enjoy getting in the buggy with uh, with a very good guy from up that region, which is uh, Mal from Townsville Gun Shop. If you know, He knows that region like the back of his hands. He grew up there, and he takes me out hunting a lot on his properties. Um, it's sort of an hour out of Townsville um, and, and Weeper but it's so hot you just you have to be prepared but it's a really good fun shoot and, and there's nothing like walking a river on a summer's uh, spring evening looking for those pigs just picking out all little grasslings and just just stalking them down the river I really get a lot of enjoyment out of that. What about uh, calibers? What do you enjoy shooting? A lot of people like a lot of different things. Some people like the inconspicuous calibers. Some people like you know, your standard run-of-the-mill and want to stay with that. What's your favourite sort of go-to calibers, let's say, in all forms, I guess, you might say, especially for rifle, let's start off with rifle. You know, for your rabbits, what do you like? For you know, deer and bigger game, what do you enjoy? Um, I'm going to go a little tangent, if you'll allow That's me. Right. Here. We a, love tangents here. It's as, all good. <laughs> as, a, um, as a gunsmith... I see so many strange calibers and I see people trying to make calibers that aren't designed to do something, do other things or trying to make guns out of other guns. And look, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. But um, And also being a ballistics engineer in my previous life, working on ballistic armour and, and being a test engineer for what is and isn't <laughs> bullet resistant, um, there is nothing like a 243. Um Having said that, I don't own one, but the ballistic properties of the 243 are absolutely mind-bending. I know. Aaron's not going to like that because I remember previously I bought a 243. And God, he was giving me so much grief over buying the 243. <laughs> so um, he'd be absolutely you know, rolling out of his skin, which I can see him behind us. He probably is so shaking his head. Um, it's it's Look, it's the great all-around calibre, I think, for, for Queensland. I know you can't shoot deer. Well, you, you can't shoot decent-sized deer with a 243 in some states. but um, So your 270 is, is fantastic for that. But... Uh, in the hunting calibers, I, re- I, th- I think Roy Weatherby got it right when he put together the 257 Weatherby Magnum. Um, if you're ever bored and you know, after you listen to this podcast, have a sit down and just do some googling on the on the effective speeds and and range of the 257 Weatherby Magnum, and it's probably the king of all calibers in my opinion for for shooting anything really. When you are you, well, let's talk about I guess uh, scopes. You like to iron sight scopes. What's your go to? What do you, you know, some people, including myself, and uh, I used to over scope quite a fair bit, mm. and now I've tried to back that off just a little bit. You know, I guess shoot for what I need and not for. You know, I remember when I've had my first deer rifle, for an example, I had the seven mil oh eight. I put like a six and a half to twenty four on it when I was trying to shoot deer at like a hundred meters. It was just ridiculous. I've told this story a lot, but what do you like to go to? Do you like anything specific in the scope area? It's it's funny you ask it i remember in the beginning i, I learned to shoot iron sight um i'd never owned a scope till i was in my early 30s um on a rifle wow really um yeah well, but just you know, when my grandfather taught me to shoot it was it was a, an open-sided um bruno model one um and then it was a 222 a remington 222 with a steel sight and of course the shotguns were just beaded um and then when i started to get serious about actually hunting deer and things like that at a bit of range it it was i felt it was inhumane for 
for me to shoot with an iron sight at sort of that 200 meter shot. So that's when I started to push into a scope and I generally shoot 2.5 maximum of five power is usually what I'll hunt with. Um, I think people get too caught up in in really high powered scopes for hunting you know again you, you you can take your prs and you can take all your, your range shooting out of this but for hunting like we're talking here uh, the lower powers just give you a bigger field of view you can be so much more aware um another slight tangent if you allow me was um, i met a fellow the other day who, who was on crutches and um a friend of his was following a pig with his 300 um caliber gun and tracking it pulled the trigger but not realizing that his mate was lying down in front of him and blew his ankle apart because he didn't have a sight picture he wasn't aware of what was around him he couldn't see anything you know what was happening and i've heard of too many hunting stories where people have not been able to see their situation around because of they've used two high power scopes you know they're using sort of a 12 power scope to shoot pigs and um at under 100 meters and you just the other thing when you're shooting deer if you can watch for bigger deer. You can get your, you know, you can really go for your prize deer and things like that. If you can see what's around, you almost use it because I won't take a binocular. Um, I use it like a binocular as well. So just that nice 2.5 to 5 power is, you know, really it. There's a nice range of 2.5 to 15 scopes out there. That's probably my favourite scope if, to buy, but just keep it really low and make sure it's a 30 mil tube, people, please, for hunting. Let's all that light in. Why? Let's talk about that a little bit too. That's interesting. Why 30 mil over, say, your standard one inch? What's the what's your reasoning behind that? It's just the amount of light that it lets in. So it makes the sight picture so much clearer and bigger to see. Um, again, for range, it's fine. You, can, you don't need huge amounts of light. You're probably not doing a competition at sunrise and sunset. But if you're out there, which be honest most hunting's done it you know sunrise sunset or even in the night time up here a lot of spotlighting it's best to to allow all that light to soak into the lens and the 30 mil 30 mil tube just allows it and a nice big bell on the front like a nice big 44 up to 60 uh, sorry up to 50 um, objective lens on the front is just really good way to go the new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit osaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. What about any purchases? Do you have any purchases coming up that you want to buy anything in mind? I guess Christmas is coming up, so you might as well pick something or... I know. bought myself a new rifle for Christmas. So <laughs> What did you get? You had to share that information? Yeah, I, I pushed the boat out and bought myself a 257 Weatherby Magnum Ultralight. So that's the really light hunting rifle. I've always wanted to own one, so I've just pushed the boat out and got one of those. What do you plan on shooting with it? What's the plan? Obviously, probably more of a hunting rifle, obviously. So Yeah, I've got a couple of deer shoots coming up. Um, up in the sort of um, up back behind Gympie region. So I've got a few shoots coming up there as soon as it starts to cool down. Another one for the raw next year. So that's what I really want to get used to that rifle. And just take it out and just, just become yeah, you know, understand how it shoots, how it works in the out in the open. Hmm. Are you reloading or just using factory ammo? No, I haven't reloaded for many years. Back as, as when I was an engineer, uh, every bullet we had to fire had to be hand-loaded because we would have to control velocity. So I, I got to a bit of press PSD, so I don't use a press anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, mean, I love reloading. I, I don't like the process of reloading, but I like the results of the reloading. Mm. I mean, you can work out a good load. You can work out where, where it needs to be. Um, you know, if you're not having good results, work on something else. And especially when you're shooting like the longer ranges like we were today, definitely starts to make a big difference. Oh, absolutely. Long range, if you're going to shoot sort of that um, five to a thousand yards sort of stuff, I think reloading is an absolutely fantastic option. Um, and it's a necessity. That's, you know, but, but again, for hunting, uh, realistically, I'll never shoot over 200 yards. 300 at an absolute max for that for that big prize. We haven't got the right caliber on board. Um, so the factory loads are well fine to do that sort of thing. Minute of angle. Um, it, as long as you stay within a, I suppose, 
uh, stay within a tolerance. Like you give yourself a set limit, you're not going to push that extra shot out from a hand from a hand load. It's fine, but from a factory load, probably steer away from it. Well, before we get onto the gunsmithing stuff, what about you know doing pistol shooting? Obviously, you was talking about rifle shotgun shooting. Now, here now you're in Queensland. Do you do any other sort of um, disciplines or anything along those lines? I've given up sort of most competition. I have to do a certain number of shoots to keep my personal handgun license because you can't um, use armour as guns in a in a competition. They have to be registered to a personal license. So um, I do a small number of pistol shoots and I enjoy it. But being a gunsmith, I'm at the range all the time, testing guns. You know, I do probably shoot on any given week twenty different guns. So. The thought of then going out and doing a social <laughs> shooter or competition or doing some target practice or something, you just lose a little bit of its luster. All right, so tell, Tom, tell us about gunsmithing, a very, very interesting pastime. Uh, we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but what's the run-of-the-mill day like for a gunsmith when they come in? I mean, it's probably great having your own business. I can imagine no bosses uh, to have to deal with because you are the boss. So, But I guess if you don't work, you don't get paid. So tell us about, right guns- yeah, tell us about gunsmithing in general and what it's like. Is it Because a lot of people, I think, look at it too and say, oh, it sounds awesome. But then maybe when they get it, they maybe say, oh, it's not what I thought it was or they, it, it is what I thought it was. Just tell us about the whole gunsmithing business, I guess, yeah. The first thing I'll say about that is if you want to be a millionaire, don't become a gunsmith. It's It's... <laughs> It's not um, in Australia. It's got a very limited, um, uh, a very limited scope because, of course, we're restricted for a lot of semi-automatic weapons, and we can't have handguns for hand- hunting and things like that. So that said, ninety percent of what I do is bolt-action rifles or lever-action rifles. Um, so a, a general day here will see anything from. I think the, the, one of the biggest things is when people try and do something themselves without having the experience, like fitting a trigger. It'll be, they'll bring it in a box of parts and say, can you sort this out? Rebarreling is very popular. Um, I don't make my own barrels here. Um, I don't have a, um, the right machinery to make them, but I buy them in and, and fit them up and profile them and, and cut out all the slots and things like that. So that's very common. Um, restoration has, has really taken off, I'll say. So about well, every second day I'll get a restoration job. That's where someone will come in and go, Tom, this is my grandfather's air gun or this was my grandmother's 410 or this was uh, you know, like a relative's or my father's pistol and it's all rusted and it's you know, mould in the wood and it just doesn't work and they say, I want you to make it new again. You know, I want this to be my rifle that I can then pass down or my pistol that I can then pass down to my kids. So doing a full timber restoration on that. So it'll be a you know, full sand back and restoration, restore all the timber work, re-bluing, uh, cerakoting. Um, and, you know, so often the barrels will be quite pitted, so it'll be stick it on the lathe and turn it down. Uh, might make some steps in the barrel just to cut that rust out and then linish it back up. So any day can throw anything at you uh, in that walks through the door. Um, a lot of shotguns. Um, there's not many gunsmiths around anymore that in Queensland, I should say, that really like to work on shotguns. And that's something I really love is old English shotguns. And it sort of leaks into you know, European shotguns, obviously, and American shotguns. But um, Turkish shotguns are, 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 I suppose, a bread and butter for me because they are inherently a cheap product and do have a lot of problems. So I say... Every day of the week, I'll have a Turkish shotgun in here of some description, whether it be one of their levers or, or brake actions or, or, you know, or these new straight bulls and things like that because they are built to a budget and people do run them hard. They're something that definitely keeps food on my table. It's a very interesting one. I'd like to explore that just a little bit further. We're not going to talk about specific brands or anything like that, but when you see, say, a Turkish shotgun come in, let's say it's a lever, or let's go both lever and straight bull, what's the most common thing you're seeing? What's the issue with the gun? Is just not firing? It's not feeding, feeding problems, ejection problems? What are you generally seeing? All of the above, A, B, C, and D. I think extraction... You hope they buy more of these then. That's good for business. Oh, look, I love them. They, I actually love these Turkish shotguns. Uh, there's one on the bench behind me that you can see there now. Um, the, the biggest problem, I'd say, is extraction. So the extractor claws generally go in them. Um, and although also because their walls, if you use a high, high wall brass, they often seize up in the chamber. Um, so the extractor claw can't quite grab them. People don't oil them and treat them like a you know, like a, a 
you know, like a fine piece of machinery. So they get run pretty hard. And the other thing is light striking as well. The firing pins on them are often quite soft. Um, so firing pins are a big one to fix. Um, and feeding problems out of the tube, the, the pickups and things like that on the bottom often wear. The tolerances aren't very fine in these things, and they might be fine with a certain type of ammo, but then they'll they'll really play up with another type of ammo as well. So, um, but that said, look for the for the money you pay for one of these you know cheap Turkish levers or straight pulls, they're great value. You know, but don't be surprised when you got to bring it in to be fixed. Are you looking to buy a new or used firearm? Do you want to sell that safe queen to fund your next purchase? Then go to OzGunSales.com. We have over 200 registered firearms dealers Australia-wide and thousands of shooters using the site daily. There are over 2,500 firearms listed, so you're certain to find exactly what you're looking for. We have over 50 years of firearms industry experience, including 8 years online. So why wouldn't you advertise with us? The one and only genuine original Ozguns. My feeling is, and again, you're in the industry so you'd know, that you know when they make a, like a lever action shotgun or a straight pull in 12 gauge, I just feel like these things, even though they're made for this because they're made to the Australian market or countries that can't have semi-automatics, for example, but you know when you have a lever action, say 44 Magnum, it was developed for a you know a rifle cartridge. Shotgun seems to me, and I could be wrong, like a totally different kettle of fish, and getting that to work consistently on a regular basis i felt like maybe some of these levers you know shouldn't have really been developed for 12 gauge because of the problems they can have it's just totally different am i wrong on that um yes and no um a lever action shotgun done well um it's just a really nice slick it's easy to move around a plastic case um they've got a lot more give and a lot more tolerance um then when you're talking about, say, for example, levering down a, a projectile out of a, out of a rifle, you, you can have different tips. You can have long tips. You can have, you know, you can have ballistic tips, soft tips, lead tips, you know, all these different types. So your feeding mechanism has got to be designed for all those different types. When you've got a shotgun, you know the parameters of the end of that bullet. It's going to be a crimped end. So it's it's a lot easier to make a loading mech to, to take a 12-gauge. Um, so... And again, the tolerances don't have to be very fine, so the and they do take different length shells as well. Um, but having said that, you know, the cheaper shotguns don't do it, don't do a great job of it. Yeah, I was just wondering too, like some of these, you know, if they just put, you know, but I guess what are people willing to pay? That's a very interesting part. Some people love the cheaper exactly. stuff, obviously. You know, a lot of people can't afford the high-end stuff, which I totally understand, and looking to get into shooting, which I think is fantastic. But I wonder if they, and there's not many that I know of, if any, actually, that are at a certain price... You know, if they put, you know, the 500 or or $1,000 on it and sold them for 1500 whether we'd get such a, you know, a lot better product than we currently get now. But are willing people willing to pay the money for them? That's the question. Absolutely not. <laughs> they no? wouldn't, they, they not, would, they not willing to pay for them. I don't think that, you know, like if you said, you know, like we could, in Australia, I could build a very reliable, high-quality Australian-built lever-action shotgun that would have great tolerances, uh, but it would retail for around $2,500. And I don't expect I'd ever sell one, um, simply because for that price you can go through four Turkish shotguns, um, and and it's more of a, it's we've become so disposable. Everything we buy now in society is designed to be thrown away. Like you, everything really is not designed to be repaired anymore. But and and the gun has been opposite to that, especially being a gunsmith. I see that people look after and oil and care for and bring in for repairs an expensive shotgun but with like phones and tvs and computers and things they're just designed to be thrown away and i think that's the mentality that appeals so well about these cheap lever action shotguns and i'll say about some of these cheaper new modern rifles and rifles as well um i personally nearly fell on the floor when i saw one of the big manufacturers release a gun with a plastic trigger um, that that was to me that the gun industry had now stepped into the disposable society. Talking about two multiple, you know, you, someone comes in with the with the shotgun for an example, they've got a problem with it. Do you ever see them come in on multiple occasions with multiple different issues? Or and if you do repair them, I mean, how does that 
go long term is it still like it's a it's a short-term fix is it a long-term fix i mean hopefully it's never going to happen again and people uh, never come back in regards to those issues how does it generally work i find that interesting about you know like if, if someone comes in with a repair trigger or it's an injection repair and then you know they have issues later on things start to wear does that become an issue again as well and maybe the same issue presents itself or a completely new issue that, you sort, sort of touched sense? on the on the on the what I call the ghost gun, which is um, a gun that's got a gremlin in it. You can do everything to it, and you can repair one thing, and something else comes up with it. And I've over the years I've seen probably nearly twenty ghost guns, which have these inherent issues that it doesn't matter what you do. To it. I've got a, a pistol there that's the same problem. It's been back to me four times. Um, it might sound, make me sound like a bad gunsmith, but in the initial it was a light strike, and so we fixed the pin in it, and we we fixed the spring, and then it was an extraction issue. So we, you know, once we'd strengthened all that, the extractor became the problem, and then once we fixed the extractor, um, it, it would start having other inherent trigger problems, and it just sort of cascades through. Um, having said that. I, you know, a customer wouldn't pay for the second, third or fourth repair on that particular gun through me simply because I give a lifetime warranty on all the work I do here. So if I repair a trigger, you've got a lifetime warranty on that repair. It doesn't matter if it's a Turkish shotgun or a, um, or a Purdy rifle or a Purdy shotgun. It's, it's got that warranty on that part. And if my work's caused something else, it may not be my fault, but it's just the inherent. And people, everyone's bought a car or bought a phone that's been nothing but a drama. And again, it doesn't matter if it's a, the most expensive rifle or the cheapest Turkish shotgun. Sometimes you just chase your tail with some of these guns and you've almost got to write them off. There's a, there's a, a lever action 270 Winchester, which has haunted me for, for nearly six months. And um, it was stolen out of this guy's safe and he had it. Um, repaired by another gunsmith and it didn't work and then it came to me and I repaired it and then another fault came up with it and sort of we've got to the bottom of it now but it had to come back four times before this gun would would work properly again so it seems to be and I've gone to gunsmiths obviously in Sydney as well because I'm not here from Queensland let's talk about I guess the training requirements I think we we're talking before the show and we we're saying there's n- there's no um, courses to become a gunsmith now so how do you learn such a trade is it handed down to people that uh, are interested i mean a lot of people come from you know maybe tool making or along those lines i mean how did you come into it exactly and uh, and if people want to learn because i look around and it's very hard to find good gunsmiths sometimes not just a gunsmith but good gunsmiths and and trying to get a good product back if there's an issue with your firearm you touched on probably one of the biggest issues we're seeing in this industry at the moment is in 1996 when the gun reforms brought in they abolished the training program for gunsmithing it was removed from TAFE and it was removed from all um, from any recognized trade anymore so since 1996 if unless you're defense or some private enterprise internally there's no training for to become a gunsmith so you may become an armorer with the government for the military for example but you learn to change barrels on ox tires or you know you might be able to service bmgs or, or you know machine guns or whatever it might be but it doesn't show you how to hand make a spring or refinish a timber stock um my very first job was was an apprentice gunsmith back when i was a very young boy before 96 for a short period of time there before the the laws were changed um and of course i didn't get my qualification because it was abolished in that period but um in the meantime i um did uh, i've got a diploma in gunsmithing with honors from um, from america it's the only place that you can do it these days and you have to be willing to commit to go over to america to get that um that qualification now the, the queensland government uh, weapons licensing gave me a restricted armourers licence, as I touched on in the beginning, because of recognised prior learning. I was, I've, I've got three engineering qualifications, just none of them were in, in gunsmithing because it wasn't like a, it wasn't a learned craft. So then, when I achieved that uh, qualification, you can see up behind me there from, from the states, um, they passed on my unrestricted. Um, armourer's licence it's a really difficult field if you fill out an application and if anyone went online to to do it you can fill out 99% of it really easily but then you've got that one section that says 
basically, and rightly so, why should we give you a gunsmithing licence? And unless you've got experience, and you can't just be a welder, you can't be a toolmaker or a watchmaker, you've got to have experience and you've got to demonstrate to the government that you've got all those skills. So some young kid comes in, he's got ambitions to be a gunsmith, he wants to, you know, go out on his own one day, he wants to, you know, he, he loves firearms and he wants to work on firearms, so could, can someone come in for an example, which will probably be difficult for like apprenticeships and stuff, but do they offer that sort of thing? Can someone come in under the wing of like someone like yourself for an example that would be able to, you know, teach and train someone and then, you know, potentially become a gun, good gunsmith themselves one day? Absolutely. So my mentor was a was probably one of the greatest gunsmiths I know, which is um, Alan Newman from down the Gold Coast, Corporal Trading, he, um, in the beginning, when I came up here to Queensland and I wanted to go out on my own and become a gunsmith, I would spend time with him. Um, he's an, an artisan and he would teach me how to blue properly and he would teach me how to uh, linish properly and he would teach me how to set springs and make loading gates, all that sort of stuff from, from a craft, from from nothing. You know, from raw steel and from how to make bluing solutions and all that sort of stuff and, and how to serocate, how to spray, all that sort of thing. And then after a bit more than a year, he he was nice enough to give me a letter saying that he felt that I was competent in the art of gunsmithing um, because I'd gone through all this with him and I'd sat with him and spent the time after hours outside of my normal job. I used to used to sell Weatherby rifles. Um, that gave me... Uh, a, a bolster to the Queensland government when they were looking at those requirements to give me my license. Looking at all the stuff you have to do, I mean, uh, rifles, pulling guns down, pistols, pulling them apart, being able to put them back together, trigger groups, seracoding, um, spraying, obviously, um, milling. We're looking at a couple of the machines here. Can you run through, and people obviously can't see them here, but um, he's got several machines here too. Like, how do you just get so experienced? Is there anything you've ever come up with that you go, like, this is, this is going to be difficult. I've either never done this or I've never had this type of firearm, never pulled down this type of firearm. It's, you just got to know so much. It's crazy. Every day I'll get a gun in here that I've never pulled apart. That's that's not unheard of. Um, you know, I I, I got a, a gun in here that a two one eight B double E manufacturer unknown make unknown, <laughs> so model unknown. <laughs> and you look at it and just say, well, let's get into it. Let's see what this is. <laughs> let's pull the stock off and see what it's doing. And you, you've just and and it's faulty, and you just got to go. How the do I sort this mess out? You know, it's a non-working rifle I've never seen before, and you take it apart, and then. Some of these guns have some pretty complex mechanisms in them. I had a um, an 1890s Rook rifle in here recently for a full restoration. You can't even find one on the internet, you know, so I had to actually work out, and it came to me in pieces, so I had to work out how this thing works and how it all goes together. So when you when you look around here, there's everything from grinders to drill presses, mill, um, there's a lathe over there, there's, you know, blasting booths um, and all your, all your different grinding surfaces, and then you know, all the small tools behind me, you know, every little fitting tool from, you know, how to, you know, like put 1911 parts back together and everything's got its own little place and purpose. And that's the hardest thing is to, to know when you need each tool. And then there's not places where you can just buy these tools, especially in Australia. In America, there's some availability. But so then I'll go to pull apart this free rook rifle, for example, and I didn't have the right tool to do it. So I've got to go and make the tool to do it. <laughs> so I've got to know how to you know, get the right steel. I've got to know how to use the mill to make the right tool and know how to use the tolerances. So people think it, you know, from the outside it's just a, oh, all you do is just play with guns all day. But the fact of the matter is, is, is you've got to know how to temper steel. You've got to know how to cut steel. You've got to know how to work with wood. You know, there's a, a restored rifle there right there behind me, and that's a Franken gun, which is made from three different rifles all hybridized together, which has had to have the steel done um, and re -blued. It's had to have the trigger repaired on it. It's had to have all that timber, you know, sanded back, all that ugly lacquer taken off of it, and then restored back with a walnut finish. And, and then I guess, too, it's coming up uh, with that price that people are going to be happy with, which is always the end game, isn't it? People coming in saying, well, how much is this going to cost to work on? And the amount of effort and time that goes into it. And that comes back, as I was saying, the jack of all trades, like knowing everything. Like it's just, yeah, it's crazy. I, just, I can't fathom it, to be brutally honest. Like I'm okay at a few things, but not as much as you are, obviously, nowhere near it. Well, every job, you, every major job you do you're probably going to lose money on if you added it all up the, the rifle behind me there's probably got 17 18 hours in it 
whereas it's only a thousand dollar restore for it. So I've burnt a lot of hours on that. But you do it for the joy of it. You do it for the reputation of it as well. And you do it to see a piece of art done at the at the end. And I've learned myself doing that rifle there. I've never done that style of Franken gun. It's melding in a, an Enfield with a um, 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 some other bits and pieces. There's some Lithgow 303 parts on it and, a, and an old barrel from a different type of rifle altogether, all melded together. I've learned heaps from it. So I've, you have to take on board and go, all right, I've learned X amount from it. So I'll take that learning as payment. Have you ever come in, you know, rifle comes in, pistol, shotgun, you know, whatever it may be, and you've looked at this thing, and whether it's maybe one of those inconspicuous firearms you haven't worked on a lot or anything, have you ever looked at it and said, oh, mate, like, it's so difficult, you can't actually figure out what's wrong with it? I'm sure that's got to happen one time here or there. You've looked at it and said, hmm, you know, it's picking the actual problem and, and fixing it? Um, yeah, there's a, all, there's the, a, all the gremlin as we talk about, as you say, <laughs> like getting them, yeah, getting those gremlins that come in where you just think this this thing just can't be fixed. It's that bad a condition; it can't be fixed. For example, I've had two of them in my career, two guns that I can't be fixed. One was a Colt Python that had a gremlin somewhere. I, I believe it was a bent frame, but even my laser my laser squaring device over there couldn't measure that it was crooked. But I believe it was a bent frame somehow. Uh, I know that sounds very counterintuitive, but <laughs> you just have to trust me on that one. <laughs> Um, and there's a, a, a domino pistol there in front of me just uh, underneath your recording equipment just in that box there which has um, been out to the range more than 20 times now just chasing a ghost in the gun and, and it's got to the point now where it's going to be, I can't fix it. You'll listen to Australia's number one hunting, shooting and fishing podcast. wonder what those conversations are like when you actually got to ring someone and say you know it's got some issue with it it just it, you know like people it can't be fixed it's a it's the gremlins in it you just <laughs> got to be square with people you know like um it, it doesn't it doesn't cost him anything it came in broken yeah i'm not going to charge him for my time even though it's it's you know dozens of hours worked on it um it's all lessons learned for me and it's just part of the being in business for yourself, you've just got to take the good with the bad, you know. When someone comes in with a 22 and an MDT chassis and you've got a Miller rail square, <laughs> you know, I can do that probably with my eyes closed, as you've just seen. Yeah, yeah. It's not even a – I don't even have to think about doing something like that. Yeah. For people that don't know, I just bought – I put the CZ457 in an MDT chassis and uh, me and Aaron went out actually today to shoot and we had a – just a few issues with elevation. We're not sure why if we had to put a rail on it, but uh, Tom just uh, – we had a rail think, from an Adler, wasn't it, Aaron, from an Adler? Yeah, from an Adler. We put that on there and he cut it shorter for me. He put it on the, the mill. On the mill. On the mill, yeah, and polished it all up. And just watching that process was very interesting. Like it's just seems something that's very artisan, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. It's it's nothing is the same, um, and it's not. It, no guns the same, and even I'll get two two guns of the same manufacturer come through, and they can be different different gremlins in them. They can be different effects of different parts, and it can be a lot of gun manufacturers. Well, I won't name anyone, but can source parts from other places. For example, a, a rifle might say it's built in country x but its barrel comes from country y and its um its bolt might come from country z uh, and the stock might be even made in you know country g uh, and then they're all assembled in you know back in that country so it depends on who's they're sourcing that part from as well uh, who's who the manufacturer is and how it ties in can can vary from model to model Let's talk about the most interesting things you've worked on or maybe something that's cropped up during a repair. If there's anything you can think of, what's the most interesting work you've done or something's happened or just something that stands out in your mind as a very, a very sort of interesting repair? Anything in particular you can think of? Yeah, probably, I think one of the most interesting guns that ever came in here was a, um, a side-by-side English shotgun. And it was disgusting it was probably one of the the most rust covered buckets of snot i've ever seen um and the person didn't know what it was it was in a bag that obviously you know found it in granddad's rafters and brought it in here and it was they they said we want to restore this rifle and i said i almost couldn't do it yeah like it was and and it was nearly three thousand dollar job because the amount of hours and work it was side by side hammerless shotgun and so I got it started working on this thing. 
and the and the more I sort of started taking all these layers of rust and all these layers of goo and just just general crap off of it. It turned out it was a, um, a, a one of my favourites, the Purdy shotgun, a side by side Purdy shotgun, and we restored it back to a full luster. Um, hand did all the redid all the checkering, obviously in it, restored all of the stock back to the original colours, um, and that one we actually ended up um, rehand engraving as well, and it's probably now valued at about $250,000. So it's a 1912 Hamillus Purdy. So that was that was an absolute a, a treasure for me to see. Sorry, guys, Tom just got a call there. No doubt people ringing for his awesome gunsmithing services if you're in Brisbane, Queensland. Mate, what is the – I know we'll talk about gremlins before. What's the worst thing you've worked on? You've Something's come in, you've thought, oh, this is – you know, no disrespect to the client, of course, but you're thinking this thing, man. How do I fix this? What What was the issue? It's got to be bending bolt handle on an FN, followed by fitting rectangle parts to any gun. Uh, I, I swear, rectangle parts are really well made, but their instructions aren't English speaking, user friendly, or user friendly for 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 a, for a uh, gunsmith. Interesting one, because you do Cerakote. That's one that a lot of people are getting into and uh, really enjoying the different colours and stuff like that. How, let's talk about a Cerakote a bit. Is it a good coating, as good as they say it is? And do you think it's a, a good way to refinish a firearm compared to bluing, for example? It's something people don't realise. People think just because your gun's blued that it's going to repel rust and, and, and the elements. But bluing... Its only task is to hold oil. So if you don't oil a blued gun, it'll rust. Simple as that. And that's what people don't understand the, you know, what a bluing finish is and how it actually functions. So its pure, pure function is to hold oil on the gun. So if they shoot it dry. Whereas Cerakoting is great for if you don't look after your guns so well, just Cerakote them up and then you can leave them um, and they won't get external rust. You'll still get rust inside the barrel because that's not coated, obviously, but you still want to keep your, your gun parts cleaned and oiled, especially internally inside the bolts and things. But it just it's people also think that just because you've got a gun cerakoted that you can throw it down a flight of stairs, concrete stairs, and it's going to be fine. It just still scratches and it still chips like anything else, but it's just a very durable, hard coating that just does a great job. It's a lot better than painting or it's it's better than bluing if you're not great with your guns what's the go-to colors these days what's uh, what, are, what are people generally doing you know as aaron knows i'm just your standard black probably graphite black something along those lines and he loves all the tan and desert crap so what are people like these days probably not the black well i like to push the boat out cerakoting is something that i really enjoy being experimental with in australia i think i'm at the forefront of cerakoting um on not plugging the but the instagram site's got some pinstripe guns I've done, so I've never done pinstriping on Cerakote, so that's a new thing we're doing here as well. Um, we've done some bright purple Coonans. We're doing a lot of interesting finishes in front of me. If you you can actually take a photo of this and put it on your website, it's a, it's yep. a uh, Shiapa Rhino done in, in orange and white with some decals, and it's a cosplay gun. It's a functioning firearm. It's a proper Shiapa Rhino, but it uh, looks like a Harley Quinn gun, not the traditional style, but that's bright orange. We've also done some some really freaky finishes on some revolvers and things like that with just really high detail and, and lettering. Um, I've got a customer order, and I can see him standing over in the corner there at the moment. It's a, it's a revolver with some kinetic energy equations written on the on the barrel and some rotational equations written on the cylinder and um, forward momentum on the hammer and things like that to just give it a real, you know, something a bit different, make make a gun unique. How does stainless steel fare into that compared to, say, bluing Cerakote? If you had to pick of one, what's your sort of go-to as a gunsmith? What do you prefer? I like Cerakoting. Um, it's just a, uh, it covers all my, all my sins. Um, and it's also... Uh, a very like it's a durable finish when you're putting it down on the counter at the at the end of the shoot or if you you know working on it and you drop it on the table and things it's a really robust coating stainless steel is a big favorite i'm not a big fan of blued guns uh, I, I do like looking at them i own lots of blued guns but i don't think it's the best finish in the world and it's probably a hangover from yesteryear that we just sort of haven't got past and i think gun manufacturers need to release more factory duracoated or cerakoted guns 
Tom, sometimes people bring stuff to you and, you know, it's not the firearm that's uh, stuffed up. It's them. They've made some mistakes, maybe some cleaning or things like that. Maybe they need recrowning. They've done an issue. What are you generally seeing if it's a firearm user error and they have to bring it to you for repair? First things first, anyone listening out there, don't recrown your own guns. Take it to a gunsmith and pay the, 90, <laughs> to, pay the $96 to have it recrowned. It's does, does people actually do that themselves? Oh, I get wonky barrels all the time. So people get the hacksaw out and the old vice in the shed and cut a barrel off and then don't realise that the burrs, you know, make it fire out and then they have all sorts of issues because there's also pressure waves inside of a barrel which release at certain distances. Each calibre and each ballistic um, um, entity you look at has its own um, pressure release. So if you cut a barrel too short or even make them too long, you can actually affect the performance of the gun as well. So, Tom, are there any other interesting avenues and things you deal with as a gunsmith? Yeah, so being a, a former ballistics engineer, I've sort of tangent off into being a, a ballistics expert uh, and do a bit of court work and a bit of advisory work and I do a lot of background reports for from ballistics uh, cases, federal, local, all sorts of different avenues that uh, that need someone to explain to the court or to explain to laymen in, in legal circles how different weapons work, how different weapons are come by, how they function, and mostly the engineering mechanics behind them. Tell us about gel blasters too. That's been a big one in Queensland. And what constitutes, you know, firearm, what constitutes ammunition with the little gel balls? Yeah, that was a that was a fascinating case that um, I really got stuck into a couple of years ago when when um, the gel blasters first came into Queensland and they were being sold out here. There was some some toing and froing, and then there were some seizures and things like that. And I was fortunate enough to be selected as the uh, ballistics expert to to represent the gel blaster community. Um, here in Queensland and it was it was a really great case to be involved with and get right down to the mechanics and what constitutes a firearm in this country and and it turns out that that gel blasters may or may not be a firearm but they can't fire a projectile which is covered under the law of what is ammunition so therefore that's why they were excused from that classification here in Queensland and that's why you can buy them up here. Now, in my home state, I won't say the best state because I've got not great gun laws by any stretch of the imagination. Now, there's a few cases. We don't want to go in depth in any of these, but what do you think the future is, uh, I guess, of gel blasters, not only in, I guess, across different states across the country, but especially in New South Wales. I mean, people are getting caught now. A lot of court cases currently uh, in progress. So where's the future for gel blasters? I guess not just in New South Wales, but other states as well that haven't ruled on this issue. It's it's a fascinating question, and there's no no singular answer because it's uh, it's it's very up in the air at the moment. They're, they are classed uh, via with New South Wales Police as a weapon currently in New South Wales, so <laughs> definitely steer clear of the gel blast and the gel balls because they're considered ammunition currently in New South Wales as we as we're talking in, in December of 2019. Um, there is a lot of, I can't say too much, obviously, because I'm engaged as, as a legal expert in this case, um, but there will be a lot of um, changes next year, and whether it be from the government or from current cases or from future planning, no one really knows in the public yet, but it'll be an interesting one to definitely follow, and I'd love to follow up with you early next year when we see some um, clear definitions around it. Hopefully we get some good results. Talk to us about speed versus weight. I think this is an interesting one you were talking about uh, with some of your experience from before. So this could be, you know, rifles for an example, slower cartridges versus faster cartridges. Which one's king and why? Um, something uh, from my, my previous life as a ballistics engineer was the consideration of kinetic energy you know uh, and how to deliver the most amount of energy at 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 target and it's something that um it's very different whether you're talking target shooters but obviously this is a hunting podcast but it does branch out obviously but uh, when you're talking hunting um the one thing i'd love to get out there is is for people just to go on your on your google and and look at what kinetic energy really is and when you're talking about you know, killing animals for hunting, for food, um, or for pest eradication. And to be the most humane, it's about delivering the most amount of kinetic energy. So therefore, you want to look at your, your bullet 
earn your mass. So, for example, we take a 100-grain bullet, or projectile, I should say, and you halve that in your equation. Um, but you take your speed and square it. And that's how you come up with your, your kinetic energy on target. So I would always say to people, sacrifice weight for speed. So the lighter projectile and a faster projectile is often far more effective than a heavier, slower projectile because of that halving of the mass. Because it gives you greater kinetic energy? Yeah, absolutely, yep. So if you take that 100-grain projectile and you halve it down to down to 50 grains, um, if you think, oh, I'm going to use a slightly heavier projectile, 110 grains, for example, when you halve that down, it's only 55 grains. But you'll gain speed in that equation. So you look at maybe loading some more powder or just using a faster projectile with that lighter projectile with that lighter projectile as well and you actually end up with a greater kinetic energy on target just going back on that when you look at the formulas for kinetic energy kinetic energy equals half mass velocity squared so it looks like ek equals half mv2 so therefore when you want to change your mass you change your speed because the two are directly related so when you can make a substitution substitute mass for speed all right tom anything to finish off uh, that you'd like to add to finish off the show impart any wisdom just to to anyone out there who's who's had a go at doing something to their own gun know when to pull the pin know when to take it into your gunsmith and go I've jammed this right up. I need you to fix it. That's that's a long one. People often go too far down a rabbit hole by start re-drilling things and trying to tap things themselves or fit parts that aren't quite made to fit, and it just makes it worse and worse. It's often worth, uh, you know, like the it's it's not an expensive thing to have your part fitted by a licensed um, gunsmith. So make sure that if you're not sure, you get it done, or if you do find yourself in too deep, just take it in and just ask them to fix it, and they'll they'll fix it for you. Don't be afraid. Where do people find you? If they want to call you, they want to engage your services, how do they do that? So the ballistics engineering and the court work um, can email obviously off my or my webpage or I've got a Instagram page or a Facebook page, but probably for the court work is best on the email or give me a ring. Um, I'm located in Tingalpa in Queensland. I've got a purpose-built facility that um, has been purely built it's not i don't do it from my garage this is a, a proper gunsmithing facility with all the right machinery to make sure your work's done so queensland brisbane i service anywhere in australia i get a lot of guns shipped to me from other states as well so you can send your guns in if you send them into your local gun dealer they can ship them to me and if they want to call you is there any number they can call you on absolutely zero four double seven four three five four one two or just go to underresistance.com Tom Tolly joins me here talking about gunsmithing on the Australian Hunting Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining me talking about gunsmithing, something I've been wanting to do for quite a long time and over 200 episodes I haven't been able to get it done, so now I have. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.